Pete's moving me up because he said that no one can see me back there. We just have some really tall people here. Uh-huh. Who, you can't see them. Which one do you want me to take? You know, we sang that song, I remember, um, Undignified, where we're all like jumping and going crazy at Summer Splash one year. And it was like 100 degrees when we were in the chapel that had no air conditioning. Remember that? Oh, my goodness. You really got to know each other then. But the kids are going crazy, and it's like you can't stop it. What do you want me to do with them? All right. Excellent. Well, I trust that you had a fabulous afternoon. I got to talk with some people about this challenge to rest, and I heard a few, a few people even took a nap. Yeah? How many would have liked to take a nap? Yeah, I admit I took a nap, but um, it's only because my kids aren't with me. And then I was a little bit sad when I heard kids running up the stairs and they weren't mine, and I knew you were having so much fun, and I didn't get to do that. So I'm glad that those of you who took a nap took that time to rest, and I hope that those of you who didn't at least had a conversation with someone that was somewhat filling for you, whether it was a conversation with your spouse or someone you didn't know. I got to have a couple of those too, love that or whether it was a conversation you got to have with God. I hope that you did something that could fill you back up. Because we learned today that in this culture that demands this go, 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 do, do, do kind of life, that it's really hard to be different, to step out of that craziness and actually look to our high God and know that he is in control, that that is completely countercultural. And so that's a big challenge, not only this weekend, but a challenge as you go into your daily lives as well and enter back into the world that is not Family Fest. And I hope that you'll take that to heart. I asked the question, what would it look like if you took seriously that mandate to rest? So I encourage you to have that conversation with the people who are closest to you. What would your life actually look like if you took seriously that mandate to rest? What God wants for you so that he can refuel you. Because tonight we're going to talk about how that need that we have to rush, how our addiction to hurry spills over into what we think about God. Because while it may be true that we are always in a hurry, have you ever noticed that God does not exactly follow that plan? In fact, not only is God not addicted to hurry, but I found that sometimes it seems like he's downright slow. Maybe you've experienced that. I get from the net laughter that maybe you felt that as well. In fact, I've found that sometimes I'm praying and God is absolutely silent. Why does he do that? Why does he make us wait? So tonight I want to introduce you to a story of a people who, a whole people group, who wanted so desperately to find that place of rest that they were willing to walk through a desert for it. And then they found that their plan was not exactly what God's plan was at all. And they found that sometimes God does make you wait. This week I started teaching a new course and on the first day, well, every day of class, I asked them what their prayer requests are. And I was surprised to find that several of my seniors had applied to grad school and they were waiting. They were waiting to hear if they got in. Some had applied to several, some just one, but they were so anxious to find out what it was that they would, what it was that they would be doing six months from now. They were stuck and they were waiting. There's nothing they could do. My husband and I recently watched a fascinating documentary called The Ivory Tower about the status of colleges today. Maybe you've watched it as well. One part talks about these extreme measures that colleges are going to in order to attract freshmen to their school. 
like putting in huge entertainment complexes that rival any large movie theater or complex, top-notch sports facilities and fitness facilities, like workout rooms like a Lifetime Fitness, pool areas that rival any country club, and dorms that look more like downtown lofts than the Cracker Jack box that I had to live in. Maybe you experienced that as well. Well, what I've been studying these last few months is that God actually has a school too. And in fact, Pastor Chuck Swindoll calls it God's Desert University. Maybe you've heard about it. There's not really anything attractive about it. It doesn't have any sports facilities. It has no movie complexes. There are no dorms. In fact, there's not even food unless he gives it to you himself. Nobody applies and nobody really wants to get accepted because the tuition is very high. However, it's one of the most profound institutes of higher education that we can ever be in. It's called God's Desert University. I know this because I'm an alum myself. I've been there a couple of times, actually, got a couple degrees. One wasn't enough, so I had to go back and get another one. I've taken a few correspondence classes there, too. Those aren't necessarily very enjoyable. I don't really like the professors very much. And I'm not talking about UNLV or Arizona State, because those actually sound pretty fun. So I'm talking about that barren campus where God decides that we need to go to learn something from him. Some people get their learning done really quickly. It takes them a couple weeks, maybe a couple of months. Yeah, it wasn't really that way for me. Moses spent over 40 years in the desert. In fact, he went on a couple of tours himself. He had a lot of learning to do. In fact, I'm pretty sure he got his PhD. And the curriculum varies from student to student. One person might have to take one class, while one person has to take something different. There are no shortcuts. There are no cliff notes. And the Desert University is pretty much just stripped down to bare essentials. I remember finding myself in a literal desert at one point in time. We were vacationing in Palm Springs in this beautiful golf community. And if you've ever visited Palm Springs, you know that the golf communities are just green and lush and there's fruit trees and all kinds of flowers. And then when you get off the beaten path from them, you see the terrain as it originally was. It is brown and dry and dusty and dirty. And I decided I wanted to go for a long run, just get out of there. So I'd been running for about 40 minutes on this little desert path, and I turned around and I could scarcely even see where I came from. I couldn't see anything green. And a little wind came up, and now there's sand just kind of hitting my calves as I'm running, and I'm thinking, this is pretty awful. And then a tumbleweed comes by, which I thought only happened in the movies. I'd never seen one before. And I just stopped and looked around and was struck by the silence that existed in that even small part of that desert terrain. And I thought, what would it be like to be stuck here for 40 years? I could hand, hardly handle 40 minutes. There were no sprinklers. There was no relief. There was nothing I could do to escape it. So I turned back because I was very uncomfortable there. Your desert place might not be this literal desert. It might be anywhere, really. It could be in your home in the suburbs. It could be an office complex or a beach in Bermuda. A desert place really has no boundaries, not God's desert. And your experience might be, your desert experience might come from a difficult relationship. It might come from a stubborn physical condition that refuses to let go. It could come from dealing with an aging parent or a dying parent. It could come from a fussy newborn. 
both ends of the spectrum. Or your stroll through the desert could be dealing with a really rebellious teenager or a really rebellious young adult. Or maybe a distant spouse. It could be transitioning to a new job. It could be trying to find a new friend in a new community. There are a million different ways that you could be stuck in the desert. And if you're not there right now, most of us know that with just a slight change of circumstance, we can be there in the blink of an eye. A change in the economy, a change in our job status, a change in our health. Boom, we're right there in the desert. What we also know is that waiting, prolonged periods of waiting, seem to have this purposelessness for us. And it seems to bring out the worst. At least I know it brings out the worst in me. And so we start to make decisions that ultimately will not serve us well. They might get us through it in the short run, but they don't serve us well in the long run. Because when we're stalled out in the desert, I don't know about you, but I tend to get a little frustrated. And that frustration turns to anger. And that anger sometimes turns to a little bit of resentment, first directed at people who have that blessing. Why did she get the job I wanted? Why does her kid sleep through the night? Then that resentment starts to turn from the person who gets the blessing toward the person who gives the blessing. And all of a sudden, it doesn't take too long before we're starting to ask God these same kind of why questions. Because the desert tends to make us feel like we're the only ones out there. And maybe it makes us feel like he's ignoring us or like he's forgotten us. Because like it or not, the desert is the place where he gets our attention. When I'm giving a lecture in a class, I get a kick out of watching the students because some are like furiously taking notes, everything I say. Others are like half-heartedly kind of looking around but still taking a few notes. Some just look out the window blatantly. They don't want to pay attention. But what I found is when I say these six little words, this will be on the test. All of a sudden, they sit up a little straighter, they flip out a new notebook page, they start paying attention because they've figured out that their success in class hinges on listening to what I say, writing it down, and even remembering for the next time. So tonight I want to talk about these people who had their share of the desert because God needed to get their attention. I want to introduce you to this group who found themselves stuck in this literal desert where they didn't want to be. And if you've ever been stuck there, if you've ever thought that God is taking his own sweet time with you, then you'll be able to relate to these people. Because these people in their, their desire to move quicker, to get things done faster, well, they found themselves asking those same questions about God. Has he forgotten us? Is he ignoring us? And when we hear their story, we'll hear that there might be another explanation as to why he makes us trudge through that desert at such a slow pace. Maybe he didn't forget them at all, but that there are lessons to be learned in the desert because it's in the desert where God gets our attention and it's in the desert where we are willing to listen. So these people, of course, are the Israelites and God made them a promise hundreds of years ago that he was going to give them this great land. And in this land, he said it would be flowing with milk and honey. So it would be prosperous. It would be productive. They'd be able to have their children there and their children's children there. They'd be able to make this great nation. And of course, he called this the promised land. But as you well know, if you've read the first few books of the Bible, or watch The Prince of Egypt with your kids, one of my personal favorites, or if you saw Exodus on the big screen, I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know if it's super accurate, but I don't know. But their journey through the desert was not nice and short. 
it was not the most direct route. And they definitely were stuck waiting. 40 years, actually, trudging through that desert. So if you've ever been a little frustrated with the length of time that God has had you waiting, these people can relate. If you've ever looked around and said, how did I get here? These people can relate. If you've ever shook your fist at God and said, why is this happening to me? These people can relate. If you've ever got, asked God to speed it up a little bit or been angry, angry at your situation, maybe angry at him, these people can relate. So we pick up their story in Exodus 12, and God has just raised up this leader, Moses, and he's told him he needs to lead his people out of slavery. And they've been in slavery for a little bit, 400 years. 400 years they've been in slavery. So he raises up Moses, and Moses gets Pharaoh, God gets Pharaoh, to let his people go. And you've probably seen this part on the movie where finally they get to exit Egypt. And experts estimate that this journey from Egypt to the promised land would be a three-week journey at most. Three weeks, 40 years. Three weeks, 40 years. What happened? So we get that, they get that amount of time. They have to cross through the desert. If they wanted to get there in three weeks, they'd have to go on the north side. And I have a map that I can show you. If Oh, that's a terrible. We can't even see it very well. Okay, well, maybe you can imagine it. So there's, yep, there's, thank you, Joe, you rock. There's a line up there. It, they crossed along that north side, they would get there in three weeks. But that is not the path that they took. God had them take the line along the purple. See that? So it took them 40 years. Why did he do that? <laughs> I got to take Joe with me wherever I go. It'd be awesome. <laughs> they got stalled out there too. We'll talk about that as well. Thank you, Joe. So their lesson, their first lesson, is going to happen on the banks of the Red Sea. We've all seen that one in the movie. So why did he make them wait? I believe that God made them wait because God needed to make them ready. What he saw is that if they crossed on that land of the Philistines, they would be killed. Because the Philistines were nasty people. They were way worse than the Egyptians. In fact, the Bible tells us time and time again that the Philistines were some of the Israel's most dangerous enemies. So instead of crossing across the northern part of that desert, of course, God took them on a different route. He wanted to make them wait so they would be ready. Several years ago, I was working as a missionary in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, I worked in the furthest town that you could go in Texas before you crossed the border. I directed a youth group there, 20 kids, and um, who had never been any further north than South Texas. So me, myself, and a couple of other missionaries, also from Minnesota, decided we should take these kids on a field trip. And that year, our denomination was having a fabulous youth conference in Colorado. And we're like, we should totally take them to Colorado. And so we brought this up to, of course, 20 teenagers, and they were very excited because they wanted to go to Colorado. They'd never been anywhere out of Texas. And we said, you would get to meet people from all over the United States. You'd get to learn about God. And they're like, are the people Hispanic? No, we're in. Like they couldn't wait to meet people who were other, other different than them. So we had two problems with this plan. It would be about a 10-day journey. The conference was five days, and it would take us five days to get there and back. And we had to rent a bus. 
and the bus would cost $200 per person. So each of those 20 kids would have to raise $200. Now this is just over the Mexican border. These are first generation Americans. Their families have absolutely no money. Our town had no money. So raising $200 per kid would be impossible, they said. And then the other thing that was impossible is they had parents. And we had to let them, let their kids go in the care of four 20-somethings from Minnesota to drive them across Texas all the way to Colorado on a bus. No problem, right? Well, they'd only known us for about three months. So the easiest thing was actually making the money. We held some barbecues. We washed a lot of cars. We went a little further north into some wealthier communities. We raised the money. And our denomination was so excited that we were coming that they said, we're going to pay your tuition. So we, we crossed off both those X's, and then we had to ask the parents. And that was not quite as easy. But we had four months to convince them to let their kids go. And they said yes. Once one said yes, they all said yes. So we get on this bus. We get on this bus that we have contracted to take us from South Texas to Colorado State University. And we thought we were being smart. We actually got bids from three different bus companies. And of course, we took the one that was the lowest, which in hindsight probably wasn't the best idea. Three hours out of the Rio Grande Valley, our first bus broke down. And this is mid-July in South Texas. It's about 95 degrees. And they said, we'll send you another bus. It'll be there in three hours because it was coming from the Rio Grande Valley. And we're like, what do we do with 20 kids on a bus? We can't sit here. There's no air conditioning. So of course, we walked 20 kids down the freeway to get to the first building that we thought might be able to help us, which thankfully was a church. And they had ice cream. So we waited for the bus to come. The bus came. We got on the bus. This one made it all the way to Estes Park in Colorado, and then it broke down. And this time, we just got the kids out and said, look, we can't wait for a bus to come all the way from the Rio Grande Valley, so you just have to sit here and pray. You're going to pray while I'm on the phone, and we're going to get a bus. And those kids, I've never heard people pray with such desperation. <laughs> because they wanted to get, they were almost there. They were right there on the cusp of going to this conference. And finally, they sent a bus. They somehow contracted one from Colorado. It got there within a couple of hours. And during those two hours, our kids got to play in the snow. And they'd never seen snow. In fact, when I came down, I brought a little photo book and I showed what it was to be ice fishing, where you could drive a car on the lake and drill a hole and sit in a plywood shack and they thought we were crazy people. <laughs> so to get them to be able to play in snow was a huge blessing. So we got to the conference. We had a wonderful time. That same third bus that came got us all the way back home. And they just learned about the power of God, not only during the conference, but they learned about what God could do on the way to the conference. These kids are in their 30s now, and they're still one of my friends who lives down there. And she said when she runs into them, that's all they want to talk about, was that trip that they got to take from Texas to Colorado. Not only because they had a great time at the conference, because they saw the power of God. They saw the power of God because we were in a position where we had to listen. And I'm convinced that God puts us in those positions because he wants to get our attention. So maybe God has you in the desert right now because he knows you're not ready 
to face the Philistines. Maybe he has you in the desert right now because he knows there's a tough challenge up ahead and you're not ready yet to get there. Maybe that job you're hoping for didn't come true because God knows what it would do to your life. Maybe you're, maybe you're waiting for a, a person to show up, a friend to show up, someone you can share your life with maybe, but you're not ready to meet that person. God has you waiting because he wants to make you ready. So back to the Israelites, you know this part of the story, the part where they come up against the Red Sea. This is the one that we see on film a lot. God sent them around the Philistine country. He told them to camp then in a spot next to the sea. Now, this was not a good spot to camp. This spot by the sea put them in between the Red Sea and the mountain range. So the only way in or out was the way that they came in. So when Pharaoh's army decided that they were going to come and get the Egyptians or the Israelites, they saw that they were camped in this ridiculous spot, but God told them to camp there. Why did he do that? So of course the Israelites are looking and they're watching Pharaoh. We read about it in Exodus 14. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified. So what did they do? They cried out to God. And then they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They knew there would be in trouble. They knew they were in trouble. They wanted to turn back. But if they went back, they'd be slaves. And even that was better than dying to them. They would have turned back what they could. So instead, they cried out to God. And that brings us to our first lesson. This will be on the test. When you're stuck in the desert, when you have no option, the best option of all is to cry out to God. It's in the crying out to God that we will learn to trust him. And I wonder, have you ever been there? Ever felt like you're stuck? Where you don't have anywhere to go? and you just pray to get out, God just wants you to cry out to him to recognize that he's there. Maybe he directed to you at that place for that time and that reason because he knew he needed to prepare you for what was coming next. He needed to know that you trusted him. I have this love-hate relationship with my GPS. Anyone? I love what it's capable of but it likes to give me those turn-by-turn directions, and I don't like that. See, I learned to drive and get places with this thing called a map. You know, maybe you've seen it. It's like a trifold thing. You open it up and you lay it out, and then you can see where you are and where you want to go. And that's the way I learned how to get places. And so it drives me crazy when I punch in an address, and this nice little voice comes on and says, take a left at 33rd Street, but I want to know what the next turn is. I want to know what's after 33rd Street before I turn on 33rd Street. And so a lot of times I just turn that thing off. And I think, I'm not supposed to go left, I'm supposed to go right. And I just use that little thing on my rearview mirror that says if I'm going north, south, east, or west. But you know, nine out of 10 times, then I have to stop. And I have to turn her back on again. And she does not even judge me. She just says, on 33rd Street, take a left. And then we're right back where we started. And I have to listen to those turn-by-turn -turn directions. 
I just want God to tell me where I'm going to end up. But did you know that when you ask that, he does not give you those directions. He just wants you to turn step by step. I think sometimes God allows us to be so in need, so desperate for help, that the only way to get out of our situation is to ask him for directions. I think sometimes he lets us walk around that desert because he wants us to come to him. Because the desert makes you think harder. It makes you work stronger. It makes you pray more. And that's what the desert does for you. It gets your attention and gives you time to think and gives you a chance to cry out to God. With every time I find myself kind of digging my feet in and being mad that I'm having to walk through the sand again, with every one of those times, I find that I'm learning. I'm learning, and that will shorten my time in the desert. The Israelites, of course, are not the only ones who learn to cry out for, to God. We read all over in Scripture of people crying out to God. In fact, one of them is David, who wrote most of the Psalms, and he found himself in the desert quite a bit. In Psalm 13, he writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? This is David, the anointed king of Israel. This is God's chosen king. And he says, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How must I wrestle with my thoughts day after day? And then he turns back. It's like he asks for directions. And all of a sudden, He's thinking differently. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing of the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. David cries out to God. He lets fly his frustration. But in the end, he says, I trust you. Back to the story of the Israelites. They're stuck in between the Red Sea and the mountains. Pharaoh's army is coming down on them. They are crying out to God. They are freaking out at Moses. And Moses gives these words. He says, do not be afraid, but stand still. The Lord will fight for you. You must be still. And with that, Moses raises his staff. And of course, God parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites advance onto dry ground. And the Egyptians are caught in the flood. Moses' words ring true, stand still and the Lord will fight for you. This morning we talked about that verse, be still and know that I am God. And here it is again, Moses is saying, be still, just be still and trust God. He will fight for you. God tells us that we have to be still. He mandates that we take time to rest. He says we should take time to step out of the chaos and recognize him. And then if we don't figure it out, if we don't do it, then he gives us a reason that we have to stand still. He figures out a way to get our attention. I always tell my students that to understand a verse, you need to understand the context. How was it first written? How was it first delivered? And the psalmist in this case, be still and know that I am God. He's talking to a nation who's at war and the war is not done yet. The Hebrew word from which be still is translated from creates this word picture. Be still means to surrender, to lay down your weapons and to just know, to lay down and surrender. Stop fighting and to just let down your defenses. This being still, it's active. 
It's a deliberate choice to say, I am up against a world of unknowns. I am stuck here in this desert. I am lost, but I'm going to be still. And I'm going to know that he has everything under control. Because whether we like it or not, whether we like the pace or not, God is a lot less concerned with our destination than he is about our transformation. That was the situation for a clip we're going to see. I'm going to show a clip from one of my favorite movies, Patch Adams. And he has lost someone that he really cared about. And he wants to have a little conversation with God. Check this out. So what now, huh? What do you want from me? amounts of pain. Man dies. <laughs> Maybe you should have had just a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. love that when we cry out to him that he answers. Sometimes it's to say, show just a little bit of encouragement. Sometimes you get a call from a friend. Sometimes he parts the Red Sea. We never know. But what he tells us in his word, what he tells us through these stories of scripture, is that he will answer, that he does hear, that he has not forgotten. And he will give the encouragement that you need if we cry out to him, if we stand still, because the desert is a place where we learn to trust God. 15 years ago, I was in an awful car accident that didn't seem like much at the time, but ended up destroying a lot more than my car. Two back surgeries and a decade of physical therapy. 
have finally brought me some relief. In these last three years, I have finally experienced this goodness that I've been waiting and waiting for. For years, I dragged my cane through that desert, though, and I shook it a lot at God and said, why are you doing this to me? What is it that I haven't learned yet? Why have you forgotten about me? Because I spent a lot of time lying on my back when I should have been at work or playing with my kids or doing something. And that is really hard for me because I am a striver to the core. My mom always told me that I might as well just tell God what I'm thinking because he knows it anyway. I thought maybe that was just a saying she had, but I figured out that that's probably true. So one day in Bible study, one of our instructors said, we were talking about being angry with God, and she said, write out a couple of questions. What would you ask God if you could ask him something about your life? And I wrote out these questions. I said, will I ever run again? I was a big runner. <clears throat> will I ever get to have a child? Because I was told I could not. Will this pain ever go away? And why did this happen to me? And I kept these in my Bible for so long because I wanted to know the answers and I asked the questions a million times. And I just kept hearing back the one question God had for me, which is, will you trust me? Because in the desert, we have to do things that we never dreamed we'd have to do. We have to go through pain that we never thought we'd have to go through. We have to accept circumstances that we never want to. But it's all part of this curriculum at God's Desert University. The Israelites were afraid, so they cried out to God. David was afraid, so he cried out to God. And Peter, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is Peter, who was also afraid and had his doubts. I love the story of him out in the water when it's storming and Jesus is walking on the water. And of course, all the disciples are just freaking out, like, what is going on? And they notice, they figure out that it's Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, let me come to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Peter swings his feet over the side of the boat, puts his feet down in a spot that should engulf him. He should be gone. But he stands up and he starts walking timidly to Jesus. And then if you remember the story, all of a sudden, Peter starts looking around and he just freezes. He sees that, the sees that the waves are starting to kind of come over him. He sees that the storm is still going. And then he starts to sink as if into mud almost. And then he cries out, Lord, save me. And then scripture says, immediately, Jesus reached down and brought him up. Immediately. You know, Peter showed incredible faith. He's the only one who said, I want to get out of the boat. But once he was out there, things started looking a little bit scary. And he started to doubt. He started to get afraid. We've all stepped into a pool before. We know that something profound is still going on here. Because when he starts to sink, it says he starts to sink. But he couldn't have been sinking very fast. Because when we step into a pool, you're down under that water within a millisecond. 
But Peter had a chance to say, Lord, save me. There's still something going on. When Peter started to sink, his faith shifted from having his focus on Jesus to having his focus on his circumstances. And I believe that Jesus allowed him to sink just a little bit, that Jesus gave him that grace so that he would have time to call out to him and watch Jesus work. That place of uncertainty, that desert place where we begin to think, where is God? Maybe that's that place where he's just allowing you to sink a little bit. He's giving us a chance to cry out to him. He's giving us a chance to stand still before we get engulfed by that water. After all, if you think about it, we have the best alumni making their speech at our graduation. The best alumni of God's Desert University because it's Jesus himself. He was alone as no man had ever been alone. He had to walk through that desert by himself. And then he had to cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus walked through the desert first. He saw the desolation. He felt that sand. He heard the silence. And so when he says, you can trust me, I just can't imagine a more ringing endorsement than that speech from our graduating alumni. Let's pray. I'll get you to your small groups. Heavenly Father, your word tells us that your grace is sufficient for us, that in our weakness you're strong, but Lord, we so hate being weak, and we so hate to wait. Thanks for putting us in a place that gets our attention and for offering us the grace that when we cry out to you, that you lift us up. Help us to remember that in the days ahead. In your name we pray. Amen.